0: Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Zandi, the Chief Economist of Moody's Analytics, and I'm joined by my two trusty co-hosts, Chris Dorides uh, and Marissa Di Natale. Hi, guys. Hi, hey, Mark. Mark. Action-packed week. I'm here at uh, Moody's HQ, uh, Seven World Trade, and uh, it's a Friday, and I have to say, it was quiet the whole way from Philly. And you know, I got on the train in Philly at 30th Street Station, got on the Amtrak Casella. Ah uh, took the train up to Newark, took the path over uh, to World Trade, and walked over. Oh, remote work is really here. Uh, it, it was, you know, very quiet. Felt like a Sunday morning to me.
1: Wow, really. you didn't
0: factor in Super Bowl. Oh, you think that's what's going on?
2: You yeah, know, people are celebrating. <laughs> Already. I'm preparing uh, those
0: tailgates. They... Well,
3: I noticed that Marissa's already prepared. Look at that. She's got yeah I'm hat. wearing an Eagles jersey. Yes. I'm ready. And, I,
0: and that's a fashionable Eagles jersey. Thank you, know? you. Yeah. I can't see the whole thing, but, it, it, you know. Uh, it's a vintage. It's a Donovan McNabb jersey. Oh, is that right? Yeah. From back in the day. Yep. And even though you moved out to the West Coast, you're still an Eagles fan. Yeah. Good for you. Right. Right. Cool. Yeah, Eagles fly. Eagle, fly. <laughs> That's our guest. He's making fun of uh, Marissa. We're, we're gonna we're gonna introduce him in just a minute. I was gonna ask something. Oh, Marissa, do you know the Eagles' a um, uh, fight song, touchdown song? Of course. You know, really? can you can you sing it? Absolutely first? not going <laughs> to sing it. <laughs> uh, you know, because I went to I went to a couple games this year and. I should know it by now because they scored. Like, I, I was, I watched the Green Bay game and they must have had like eight touchdowns. It felt like it. And I was singing that damn song eight
3: times. I still can't remember it. It's catchy. It's catchy. It is, it
0: is catchy. E A G L S. <laughs> yeah. We're, of course, we're all Eagles fans. Yeah. And we had a webinar this week too, uh, which is kind of like the three of us. You know, it's kind of like we take the podcast and we make it with slides and that turns into a webinar. It's kind of a, Weird thing. Have you noticed, like, what's the difference between a podcast and a webinar? You know, the salt It felt
3: very, yeah, it felt like we were on the podcast. (laughs) Just more a lot
0: lot less banter, though.
3: Yes, more. Less
0: banter, more formalized. More more professional. We had a lot of folks. I think we had 1,800 clients on that call. Yeah. On the webinar. And, you know, we had, this is bugging me. We had had 300 on the nose people give feedback. (laughs) You know, you ask for feedback one person didn't like it. I was like, what? Why, why didn't you like it? I, I, should I call that person out? I'm not gonna call that person out. Although uh, you no. Know, no, no, you should Kind of like uh, President Biden at the State of the <laughs> Union. Yeah, yeah. All right, we got to introduce <laughs> our guest because he he's biting it into this conversation.
1: <laughs> yeah, all right, okay, that's not fair to, yeah. It's, okay,
0: Chris, Chris Herbert from the Joint Center of Housing Studies, Harvard uh, Joint Center for Housing Studies is our guest today. And uh, Chris, uh, we, we, we're we going to have a formal introduction where you're going to tell us about your life story. But before you do that, what do you want to say? You want to say something? You know, no? I just wanted
1: to say, I hope it wasn't your mom who was the one you know, guest who didn't like the show. <laughs> oh, what's that? I missed that. What'd you say? I said, I hope it wasn't your mom who was the one person <laughs> who was critical of your show. Oh, not my mom.
0: No, no. She, my mom, uh, is a, is a fan. So yeah, through thick and thin, she's a I fan. I thought you
3: were going to say my mom would never listen to a webinar.
0: I well, that too. <laughs> <laughs> that too.
3: <laughs> that too.
0: I, that, I felt that that might've been a little too, you know, like a son wouldn't say that about her mom, you know, but you know, kind of thing, but I'll say it. Yeah. Yeah. you can say. <laughs> <it>. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, you think I, I want to call this person up and say, what's the deal? You know, How, you know, what could, what could we have done to, you know, you know. Usually, when that happens, they they don't they just disagree with the message, so they're, they're shooting the messenger. You know, that's possible. That's a possibility. Yeah. But uh, the other big uh, event uh, this week is Action Packed Week. Was I was in D.C. and I saw you, Chris uh, Herbert, uh, and, and we got two Chris's here. So I'm gonna you know say Chris for Chris Herbert, and I say Chris D for Chris Dorides just to make this easier. And uh, the Joint Center had it. Was it his first in-person meeting since the pandemic
1: or? First, first one, one in, in Washington. Yeah. It was our third in person, but the first in Washington. Got
0: it. Got it. And you told me uh, that I was your second favorite economist. That's that's the message I took away. Second favorite.
1: Your co-favorite favorite okay. <laughs> uh you, know. you have two favorites it's like it's just like our children you can't love one child more than the other I know. got it
0: I got it but I, I still can try though can I can I try You can.
1: I, I wasn't that one person by the way no no I know you
0: you were definitely not that one person <laughs> uh well you, the, the meeting was fascinating well maybe it's a great place to uh uh pause and for you to Give us a sense of the center, a little bit of the history, because I I don't know the history, and I'm really curious, and uh, your your role there and how you 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 got that role. So maybe just give us a sense of
1: things. Sure. So for the joint center, so the joint center has been around since 1959. So we're pretty old by academic research center standards. We were established with a major gift from the Ford Foundation to Harvard and MIT to create a center focused on urban issues. And so this was coming out of time when there was you no know, real concern about what was happening in cities across the globe. So the Ford Foundation said, we wanna get these two universities thinking about it. So they created the Joint Center for Urban Studies of Harvard and MIT. So two things, it was joint Harvard and MIT, and it was also broadly urban studies. Fast forward 1971, like there was a long, you know pretty renowned history of the center during that period of time. People like Daniel Patrick Moynihan, was the director of the center and his work on the black family came right. out of the center, Nathan Glazer, the melting pot. So a lot of like very seminal urban work came out of the Joint Center back in the day. But then in 1971, the Ford money ran out. Ford said to the universities, hey, we did our job. We got to launch. You keep it going from here. The university said, that's not the way we operate. You know, up to the centers to figure out a way to do this. So Derek Bach, president of the time, said John Dunlop, who was an economist, Labor Secretary under uh, Gerald Ford, mm-hmm. sent him over to say, shut those guys down. Don Dunlop really appreciated the fact that having a center at Harvard, and we were very outward focused. We were very intended to be multidisciplinary and also to, to link ac- academia, policy, and, and business. And so John said, I think we should keep it going. And I think what we should do is get a funding model that that gets the private sector to provide funding to provide basic research in into these urban issues. And that... Point, he focused it on housing and got a group of companies, which is was called our policy advisory board. So that was established in 1971. It's been around mm-hmm. for 52 years now, and that created the stable source of funding for us to go forward. We got divorced from Harvard, and uh, we got there was a divorce in the 80s, and Harvard got custody. So we've been the joint center at Harvard since then. Oh, I see. And we kept our multidisciplinary nature going with the joint part by being joint between the Kennedy School of Government and the Graduate School of Design, where urban planning is. So. Um, so we've been focused on housing at Harvard. Used to be much more aligned with the Kennedy School. Now we're more aligned with the Graduate School of Design. I report to the dean of the design school. Oh, I got it.
0: Uh, and Chris, you've been, is it? are you the executive director or what's your... My,
1: my title is managing director.
0: Managing director. Managing director. So uh, How uh, long I mean, have you been
1: I, managing director? Since 2015. Okay. And I was research director for five years before that. And it, was it? I, I can't remember. Was it Eric Belsky who was? Yeah, were you so Eric, Eric Belsky? Yeah, I succeeded Eric, and Eric before him was Nick Rancinis. Oh, Nick. He, uh, yeah, I forgot about he that. Was, yeah. He was the director for about twelve years, and and was really mm-hmm. seminal. And he he built up the policy advisory board and did a lot to um, to make us uh, a much more prominent player in a lot of spaces. So, we right. A lot
0: it, in uh, re, you were a researcher at the center before you became managing director. I see. Okay. Okay, yeah, great. So you've been a kind of a housing guy for a long time, the, the, the kind of a call yeah. a house. Yeah, I've been okay. a house
1: for a long time. I got um, So I got a master's in the 80s, and then I went out and worked in affordable housing for a little while, I decided I wanted to be a researcher, came back to the Kennedy School, got my PhD in public policy in the 90s, worked at Apt Associates doing research and evaluation on housing for about 12 years, and then I came back to the Joint Center.
0: Great, great, and so I would, you know, I one thing I find so cool about the Joint Center in these meetings is you've got a a, a large number of of folks from across the house. It feels a lot is from the home building, housing supply, building materials. You've got a few mortgage folks sprinkled in there, a few mortgage originators, but it feels more kind of housing supply related. Is that is that fair to say?
1: Yeah, and we actually um, we actually try to curate the group who are part of the policy advisory board. So right now it has sixty four members, and they're basically all household names in the housing sector. And we try to make sure we have a good group of home builders. And the reason is is that they are driving so much of the housing yeah. market in terms of the in, you know, industry side. And then we have all the manufacturers you can think of, you know, Pella, Armstrong, Kohler you know, all, all the kind of, we walk down an aisle in Home Depot or Lowe's, those yeah. companies are all up there. Then we have housing finance. We have folks on the information transaction side. So Zillow and CoreLogic and move.com. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we're trying to get into some more of the spaces that are emerging. So we've got invitation homes. So the, the single family rental space. Um, so we really try to make sure that when we have that group come together, and you know, Mark, after you spoke to him, we pass the mic around and say, "What's happening in, in in your world?" It's like a Fed beige book for housing. So you've mm-hmm. got the you got the home builders, single and multi. You got the manufacturers. You got the distributors. You got the retail distributors. You got the realtors. You got the, the financiers. And so you're seeing from all those different parts of the ecosystem what's happening. And that's where the group gets a lot of value is sharing insights among each other.
0: Yeah, it makes sense. Well, you know, obviously housing is kind of front and center here in, from a macroeconomic perspective because. Uh, it's in recession, I think it's fair to say. I mean, home sales are uh, gotten nailed since mortgage r- rates rose. Uh, uh, they've risen uh, quite considerably from where they were at the end of 2021 going into 2022 when they were at record lows. And we've seen uh, home sales come back down to kind of levels we see and saw in the teeth of the pandemic or not quite to the lows of the great recession, financial crisis, but pretty close. Home building is weakening and now house prices are are rolling over. So I suspect, and I got a sense of this, but maybe you can give us a better sense of it. Uh, the, the the mood in the room was how would you characterize it? Was um, it consistent with what I just said, or or are they? Of course, these guys are always glass half full kind of guys, which is, is important, uh, very important for right. business. Yeah. Otherwise, they wouldn't be in that business. Yeah. You
1: know, I, um, the 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 mood in the room was. Uh, I was not going to say cautiously optimistic. I would think it was kind of surprisingly optimistic and surprising on their own s- self. I mean, I think you know, there's a lot of chatter. People just come back from the International Builder Show. Builder confidence is moving up. Um, there's a, a lot more traffic that the builders are seeing than they expected to see in the early signs of the spring season. Um, the manufacturers, you know, when they're in that room, they're looking over at the home builders to see what, what they're saying because they know that's what's going to hit them six months later. They had a big backlog, they're still working through, multifamily has stayed up, commercial has been doing well. So they're all still feeling pretty good and kind of saying, I think bad things are coming, but now the home builders are saying they feel like this might be the bottom. So the room was m- much more optimistic than I would have thought. And I and I say optimistic, it's not like glowing optimistic. Yeah. But yeah. More like there's there's they think that on the single family side, they might be at a bottom. Multifamily actually. I think what we I heard was the there's red lights flashing and a downturn coming.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Do you think on the
0: single family side, I think we have to make a distinction clearly from the single family and the multifamily? Uh, it, is it do you, do you think it's largely related to the movements in mortgage rates? So mortgage rates, they were just for context, the 30 year fixed was sub three percent back late 21 at the low. If you go back to late 2022, it peaked at about seven percent, and now that it's come in, it's bouncing around, but it feels like it's somewhere closer to six, maybe maybe six and a quarter or something like that. And you know, with those movements, it does feel like it is having some impact on kind of demand, uh, you know, general sentiment. Is do you think the mood in the room is reflecting those swings in the mortgage rate?
1: Yeah. And I I think it's important distinction between, as you said, between single and multifamily. So the the movement in rates hit the single family market pretty much immediately. And so it, it, you know, know, single family starts went from pushing 1.2 to 900,000, I think now, and certainly softening multifamily starts stayed up. And I think the interest rates really just drove the buyers out of buying homes. That meant that they were going to stay in the multifamily market longer other thing I think is that the interest rates are going to affect multifamily with a lag. And so multifamily folks have deals in place that got their equity and debt financing lined up. They were not about to stop last year because I knew if they stopped, they were they were going to have trouble getting that financing in the future. So there's there's a lot of momentum. It takes a long time to get that. But what I heard at that table was the financing is now not available for 2023. And so trying to get new starts to pencil out is going to be tough. And so I think the the multifamily kind of defied gravity for a little while, but it can't do it forever. So I think we're going to see multifamily starts turn down. And the, what I'm, you know, I think people are seeing is that consumers were shocked by seven percent interest rates, but but then the movement from seven down towards six says, Oh, six doesn't feel so bad anymore. Yeah,
0: right. 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 Yeah, you turn up the temperature to scalding and you turn it down a little bit, and you go, okay, right. we can live with that. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, that's that's the sense I got when I was there. That you know, on the single family side, a bit of relative optimism. You know, maybe the worst is over. Kind of optimism. Right. Uh, But on the multifamily side, I got the opposite feeling. That you know, uh, the uh, storm is about to come. And of course, they were looking at it through the prism of supply and construction. And they're saying, "Look, we can't get financing. Uh, The capital markets have shut down. Banks are." Uh, pull back on their underwriting. They, they've raised the the bar here for getting getting uh, credit, right. and we're not going to have the financing we need to c- continue to produce at the pace we have been. You know, in in 2023, that was kind of the sense I got.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, I think the market fundamentals are that you know vacancy rates were at historic lows, rents were growing through the roof, vacancy rates have started to turn up, rent growth is clearly slowing along with house prices. Um, so that's also going to give them some pause, but still vacancy rates are, as much as they're coming up, they're still not high by any kind of historical standards. And so, and those two markets are linked, right? If there is recovery in the single family market and people are able to get into home buying, that's going to mean less demand for apartments. And so the, they're they're kind of moving on, you know, which way is demand flowing will affect this, the relative strength of those two markets.
0: Hey, Chris, let me turn to you. I mean, does, does that surprise you? What, 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 what I did, what we just said about the mood in the room, is that con- consistent with? No, that I think that's consistent
2: with some other uh, data points as well. One thing I would say on multifamily is just the uh, the pipeline is still full, right? So even though new permits, new starts may be down, certainly because of the financing issues, there's still a lot of supply that's going to come online over the next uh, oh. next couple of years here. Right, so the building is going to continue. There's still quite a bit of demand out, or c- quite a bit of activity, I should say, to complete those projects, but that's also going to potentially have some downward pressure on prices and uh, rents uh, as well. So I can I can understand the uh, the mixed emotions around the two markets.
0: Yeah. And that's exactly what someone, a, a large multifamily developer in the room told me. He said, uh, uh, starts are going to weaken next year because we, we've been in the starts, the actual yeah. beginning construction very strong in 2022 going into 23 but that's going to really start to tail off because i can't get credit but the completions you know is are going to remain very high and even improve in yep. 2023 because i've got all these units sitting in the pipeline going to completion in fact it's almost a million uh, record amount number of units million units they got bottled up because of supply chain issues and labor market issues related to the pandemic, immigration, that kind of thing. A lot of immigrants work in the construction trades. And they, uh, they now those, those, those uh, constraints are easing and I, I can finish these these uh, homes and it's gonna uh, show up in completions next year. So I, I thought that was very interesting. Which, you know, does, I think we talked about this in the past, does uh, call into question what's gonna happen with construction jobs, right? you know, they, they may not fall off. They haven't fallen off. Chris, I, uh, Chris, have you noticed they construction employment continues to rise? There's yeah. been no decline in construction employment. And that feels like it's that's going to continue here going forward.
2: Well, you got the infrastructure as well, though, right? So that-
0: Yeah, that too. That's that's yeah.
2: certainly going to continue and even increase in the future. So there'll be some offsetting if, if you're looking at construction overall. But the, the resi, resi will remain strong because of the, the pipeline for now, at least. But
3: yeah, the manu- um,
1: manufacturers were saying that um, commercial uh, construction is re- in a bright spot for them, and, and I don't know, Chris, if you've got insights to that. I, mean, I was a little surprised. I was thinking office space has got to be weakening. Retail space has been weak for a while, but there is broadly, Rick, commercial <clears throat> they're saying was a bright spot for them, so offsetting what's happening on the residential side.
0: Well, I think we're seeing a lot of construction in in manufacturing, believe it or not, manufacturing facilities, which goes to kind of supply chain resilience and deglobalization. A lot of manufacturers are bringing production back home, and that's really lifted uh, manufacturing uh, uh, construction.
3: And warehousing and that kind of-
0: What's that, Marissa? And
3: warehousing and the stuff that's sort of adjacent to manufacturing.
0: Yeah, it's been very strong. Yeah. So so, uh,
3: Chris, um, what do you think was
0: kind of at the top of concerns uh, for for the group? What's what's kind of most worrisome, I, I guess, other than the general economic environment, which was I was there. I hopefully i cheered them up a little bit because I said no recession at the end of the day. I don't know if they bought into that or not. Uh, but but other than that, you know, what else is on their minds? What's kind of top of mind for them?
1: You know, it's it's um it's the same issue that's been some sense top of mind for the last decade, and it's labor. It's labor. amazing given where we are in the business cycle. You know, the issue that keeps coming up is just a shortage of workers. Um, and so you know, even at a time when you might be thinking about slowdowns, they're all talking about how hard it is to get workers, and it's you know, obviously the construction side we've talked a lot about, but manufacturing and, and transportation drivers. Um, they keep talking about that. And one of the themes too was that he, you know the manufacturers saying, even if we have a slowdown, we ain't not letting anybody go because it's taking us amazing. so hard to get them.
0: Amazing. That's so amazing. You,
1: labor, labor, labor. You know, so one of the speakers we had the next day was this guy, Andrew Seely from the Migration Policy Institute. Because one of the things they keep coming back to is we don't have enough workers. We need to get more immigration because we need to get more workers of all stripes.
0: Yeah. Yeah, uh, that is that. That's a, a, definitely a theme that uh, is evident across a lot of industries. I think businesses are very reluctant to lay off workers uh, because they know, on the other side of the current adjustment we're going through, that the number one problem they're going to have is finding and retaining people. You know, so it's right. going to be very, very difficult. And um, construction is an old,
2: older occupation, right? There, you have people retiring out, right? So,
0: how do you? Yeah. Replace them? Did you see that paper uh, written by Austin Goolsby and, and, and another researcher on construction industry productivity growth? I mean, one way out of this box is to improve productivity, make you know, pr- be able to produce more homes with fewer people, fewer workers. And the point of the of the uh, of the research was uh, not that's not happening. That there is no meaningful improvement in construction productivity growth. Uh, you know, in, in recent decades, really.
1: Did you did you see that paper? Um, You know, I I haven't read the paper directly. I've seen the news accounts. I read Ezra Klein's piece on it. Um, So I need to go back and read the paper. But, you know, it it goes back to the 1970s. And in some sense, my take on it was was probably a response to that McKinsey work a few years ago pointing out the lack of productivity growth. And this one seemed like it was even more pessimistic, that it wasn't just slow. It was almost negative over that period of time.
0: Yeah, I belong to this uh, kind of email group of folks in the construction industry broadly and the uh, one of the members sent out this paper and and said you know what do you think and it was pretty amazing right christy i mean there was a lot of different theories a lot of it revolved around regulation right you know they're moaning people that's not the right way of saying it people were pointing to the increase in the regulatory oversight and a lot of things you know some of which are good, you know, like worker safety, you know, would be an example of, you know, some regulation, but they were pointing to that as the the key reason for the lack of
1: productivity growth. Yeah. Did you find the paper believable? Since you well, read-
0: I did. You know, and Austin is good. You know, he's now going to be the well. I think he already is the president of the University of uh, President of the uh, F- uh, Chicago Federal Reserve. Right, and he's a he's a great academic from the University of Chicago. So yeah, I, I find it very credible. I mean, there's a lot of measurement issues like in everything. So I wonder if there's you know in the construction trades it might be particularly difficult to measure some of the things that are going on. I guess, but. Uh, but uh, you know, it is it is shocking how uh, the 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 data, the numbers that are produced suggest that there's been very little productivity growth, uh, if at all, in this right. construction.
1: It doesn't. Aside from the fact that people use nail guns now, there's not a whole lot about the process that's yeah, very different. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Exactly.
0: I
2: well, mean, there's been some maybe some of maybe the, some of right. the safety measures, right? Some of the processes, right? So, I, one question, I guess, or one pushback, I would have maybe where we've been measuring productivity. In a very naive way or an incomplete way right Mm -hmm. for producing houses with fewer deaths of construction workers right but it takes longer that's you know if you if you did a full social calculation it may not be look so bad right may actually improve uh, right
0: well uh i think the other thing that came out of the discussion for me was just you know how uh serious the shortage of housing Still is, I mean, you know that kind of has gotten kind of pushed to the sidelines in the last year because of the housing recession. But the, the severe shortage, particularly of affordable housing, it, it continues to be an issue. Continues to be a problem, and actually, to some degree, maybe getting worse because construction activities come, come down, Sing, we're producing fewer single-family homes today than we were, you know, a year ago, and so that's that's not helping. And you had. Uh, uh, HUD uh, Secretary uh, uh, Fudge there, and she was talking about, you know, what can we do to kind of address these supply side issues, you know, to try to get more supply. Do you have, a, you know, if you were kink for the day, uh, maybe kink for the week, or is there a policy or two that you would uh, focus on uh, that, you, that could move the dial here in terms of supply, you know, trying to help with regard to more affordable housing?
1: Yeah, you know, I think um, there, a lot of the conversation about just the complexity, the length of time, you know, the obstacles in place, particularly to smaller, higher-density housing is, is a big part of the problem. And, and so I think we would, if I were king for a day, um, and I, or maybe better put, if I were governor for a day, <laughs> then I, I think at the state level we need more action to take back from local governments, the ability to make building restrictive—you know—that's it's really a state prerogative. Like they delegate that authority to local governments, and obviously, local governments are not thinking about anybody's best interest but their own. And, it, and in their interest, it may be good to restrict supply because it pushes up prices and keeps out folks that might demand more public services from them. And so I think states need to take steps to say, no, we have a collective need to produce housing of different types in a broad range of communities. So I'll give an example of my own state in Massachusetts under Republican Governor Charlie Baker passed a, a law that communities served by the mass transit system or either directly or adjacent. And it's 175 of them in the broader Boston area have to have a minimum of 50 acres of land zoned as of right. For housing at a density of 50 units an acre. And that that 50 acres is a minimum. If you're a bigger town, you'll have to have a larger requirement. My own suburb of Lexington that came out to 82 acres. And I can tell you it changed the whole dynamic in my own town. From uh, as the planning board, I was on a comprehensive plan advisory committee, you know, coming forward to say we need to have a greater range of ha- housing in town. And there's a lot of public sentiment in support of it. Um, but it's difficult to push through, but then when you say, oh, there's a state mandate, we have to do it. Where are we going to put it? It just changes the whole conversation. I I think it'll be interesting to see what happens in Massachusetts as a result of this, because it's going to allow as a right development in every community in the Boston area and not huge areas, but enough to say that's a lot of housing if it got built out. So I guess that would be my magic wand. Do that kind of a thing in a broader range of places.
0: So, so you're saying that you need leadership from the governor to kind of lay down the law to the rest of the local governments to say, "Hey, did, you know, you've got to change your zoning and permitting to allow for more uh, higher density kind of construction."
1: Yeah, and it's it's flipping it So rather than saying it's up to you. We suggested and it, say you have to do it. Where are you going to do it?
0: Yeah, that's a, isn't that a tough thing to do? I mean, I can maybe in Massachusetts, but
1: you know, I don't know. That feels like that feels like it's a pretty tough thing to sell. I mean, Massachusetts is a blue state, but I will say that the typical uh, the mantra has been that liberalism ends at the driveway. And so even though we're a blue state, um, the governor was pushing for a number of years to try to change the laws relative to uh, votes at the local level to have a zoning change, which had been two thirds majority. And it took forever to get it to change just a simple majority. But he got it through. And then he got this through. And I think, you know, he's Republican. I think it it does bring together Republicans and Democrats, folks interested in in affordable housing from the point of view of folks, the the residents needing that housing, but also business who say as a state, we're not going to grow if we don't have an opportunity to bring more people in. So Utah is another state that's having a lot of action at the state level to try to overcome local barriers. And that's a very red state. But the business community is spearheading it out there. Okay,
0: I, I think we can allow you to be governor for at least a day. Which <laughs> which state do you want to be governor for? Just just asking.
1: Uh, I pick a big know, one. Yeah, i Chris. I love my own my home state. <laughs> okay. But but Martin Haley, she's you know, she's doing a good job. I, I don't want to kick her out. Just well, yet. it sounds like you you're announcing for uh, governorship.
0: That's what it sounds like. No, no not, okay. here. Inside, <laughs> not, not here. Yeah, yeah. Got it. Got it. Hey, hey, Chris uh, D. Uh, no. Yeah, uh, how i've lost a little bit of track here we estimate the shortfall in housing uh supply based on looking at the vacancy rate you know if we look at the vacancy rate across the housing stock today it's extraordinarily low and you compare that to kind of typical uh typical levels and you do a calculation of how many units need to be constructed to be able to get back to those kind of typical levels do you, do you have those numbers i'm putting it on the spot but do you have those numbers uh, at hand? Yeah, just I just, just looked at this
2: last night, uh, 1.5 million. 1.5
0: million all right. units, homes. Oh, units, correct, correct. Right. So, so it's, it's about a year's worth of construction.
1: Yeah, and that's what the home builders have at a very similar estimate. Um, I think um, they got it from
0: us, Chris. I'm just saying.
1: <laughs> yeah. Did they? They're all They're our all cars cars around. around. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do you know yeah. why Freddie Mac's and, is so much higher? For some of them,
0: you? I'm their favorite economist, Chris. I'm just <laughs> saying. I'm just saying. Yeah. Go ahead.
1: Chris, Chris, do you know why Freddie Mac's number is so much higher than yours? I uh, believe they Yeah, are.
0: they're just wrong. Yeah.
1: Uh. <laughs> <laughs> no, no offense to Sam Cater, the
0: chief economist. But he, he, he's he, – Chris, D, you want to explain? I was
2: I was going to keep it simple. As I believe they're assuming a higher vacancy rate at equilibrium. Uh, than we are, right? So uh, that naturally, yeah, you would assume that we... we're,
0: we're looking at uh, we're looking at the vacancy rate for homes for sale and rent, and they're looking at the broader universe of homes off the market, which is a mismatch of all kinds of stuff, and it you know it makes the number feel a lot bigger. Right. So uh, I, I don't think that's my own view. Obviously, I think it's the homes for sale and rent that you need to focus on. And if you do that calculation, it comes up to about 1. Point, as Chris D said, wow. 1.5 million. Yeah. yeah, it's possible. You
2: quite cons- might pull more of those vacant homes out, but a relatively small share. All
0: yeah. right, say. Right. right.
1: Yeah, I don't know if you are all Woody Allen fans, but um, there was a line. I think it was in Andy Hall, where he talks about, um, you know, the, the, the two kinds of people in the world is the horrible and the miserable. <laughs> and yeah. The, you just yeah. want to be. You just want to be miserable. You don't want to be horrible. Yeah. There you go. So, <laughs> Yeah,
0: I
2: mean,
1: either way, it's horrible or miserable, right? It's 1.5, 1.6, or three. It's a lot of homes. It
2: is. It is.
0: But
1: yeah, Um, let me turn to another kind of thorny
0: topic in the housing space, and that is uh, investor demand. That'll that you know, this also has kind of been pushed to the side a bit in this housing recession. But if you go back a little over a year ago, there was a lot of hand wringing about. The increase in the uh, in the uh, uh, share of sales, home sales, are going to to investors, and an in, in increasing share to institutional investors, big financial institutions uh, that are able to go to capital markets, raise a lot of money, and come into communities and buy up homes and then rent those homes out. So buy to rent, and a lot of uh, worries that that uh, is a problem for home ownership. Uh, because, you know, these institutional investors are going to be able to buy these homes long before the average American household can, because that household has to go out and get a mortgage and you know, negotiate a price. And by the time they figure all that out, the investors bought the property. What do you how do you think about uh, the advent of uh, increased investment? And I'm sure this is going to come back You know, as soon as that housing market kind of finds its footing again and we're recovering. These guys, the investors are going to back with, the, you know, I think quite aggressively because they've got a, a workable business model, and they're going to be in these markets buying a lot of property. Do you, do you have a, a perspective on that, Chris?
1: Um, yeah, I, mean, I guess the short answer is it's complicated. <laughs> but yeah, um, one thing I think that that's challenging in this space too is this focus on uh, institutional investors, and you know th- there are a lot of different classes of investors, and 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 so I think it's important to differentiate them and their, their relative advantages and their differences in their management strategies. Um, because you, you highlighted a concern about um, crowding out home homebuyers. There's other folks who are really concerned about their practices as managers and how well they treat their tenants and their potential uh, predilection to evict more quickly or the like. So, um, and I just caution against, you know, painting too broad a brush of institutional investors versus others. We had a yeah. doctoral student who did some work on this using some, I believe it was, I don't mean, to remember it was Zillow or CoreLogic. It was a cross-sectional point in time, but he, he linked all the different buyers and was able to use, it must've been mailing addresses or like to try to aggregate up to see how much the portfolio was with these different um, classes of owners and institutional owners What he characterized it, were more than a thousand units, but there are a whole bunch of folks institution and entities that own you know, between 100 and 1000 units. Um, and, and he looked at where they were buying homes in terms of the racial composition, the income level, the price level, and institutional investors tended into the largest scale investors tended to be in the kind of moderate income suburbs. And a lot of the smaller investors were in lower income minority communities. And so you think about the kind of old investors of you know, slumlords and the like, right? So there's a whole bunch of class of investors in different places. So I just want to make sure we kind of distinguish what, what our concerns were. Um, but to go back to your question about crowding out home buyers, which can happen from Wall Street, but it can happen from all these other investors. Yeah. too.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm.
1: I do worry about there not being a level playing field in the sense of what's the financial return to the investment? And if you think about it, with the mortgage interest deduction, homeowners should have an advantage, right? Because I can deduct my interest and in my property taxes, and I don't have to claim any income. But we have very few people, particularly lower income folks, who, who mm-hmm. claim the mortgage interest deduction because Brilliant. it's so limited now. But given the standard deduction and everything else, so but if I'm an investor, I can claim all my all these expenses plus depreciate the asset. So I, I, I was uh, in conversation with one uh, institutional single-family firm, and they noted that their cost to rent the home was less than what a home buyer would pay in a monthly payment. And you know, and one disadvantage Wall Street might have is that they might have a pretty high you know, re- required return from, from equity investors that might raise their cost of capital in some ways, even if their debt is lower. But if they get the, you know, this other advantage of depreciation, et cetera, yeah, and they're, they're, so that I would, I think we need to think about how do we make sure that homeowners don't have a higher cost of capital, a higher, a higher cost, or than these investors. If we think that giving them an opportunity to own is important,
0: yeah, that makes total sense. Kind of uh, from a from a tax code perspective, you don't want the tax code to benefit one class of, of buyer over another class, and that's right. what's happening. Particularly in this case, we're saying we want we're gonna give the benefit to the tax benefit to an institutional investor over you know an Ameri- you know, American family. I mean, really that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So we gotta, right. that's a thorny, that's a really thorny problem. You know, uh, trying to figure that it, one
1: out. It is, and we don't really have, so what what's the policy solution? You're gonna you know, make it so investors can't own single family homes, you can't do that, right? There's a whole host of reasons why actually having capital flowing is a good thing and having that supply of housing. So it's really, you need to have tenant protections to make sure people are treated fairly. And then you, I would think we need to think a little bit more about how do we make sure on the financial side, there's more of a level playing field between homeowners and investors.
0: And when we say financially, you mean tax, the tax code? Tax code. The tax code, yeah.
1: Hey, Christy, I, you know,
0: you've know you done a lot of work in this area too. Anything else you want to bring up here? Or Marissa, I've been kind of locked you out, but just wait, I'm coming back to you and we're doing the game shortly and tradition is you start, so you're, you're up, but do you guys have anything you want to bring up here with regard to investor demand?
2: I, I would agree that it is complicated I, I do think we need a mix of uh of I thought it was a little wishy-washy to me yeah it's complicated yeah yeah but I'm uh, well it is complicated okay I, it is I've been on both sides I you know personally yeah. I've been on both sides of this issue right I've been i I've rented from small time mom and pop uh mm-hmm. landlords I've rented from big corporations I have been a landlord right so I from that perspective I I can understand that the the complication that I can't say that one is necessarily better. There's there's good and bad in all in all the the different camps. And if the number one goal though is to increase housing generally, right, let's solve that problem first. I think you need those investors to be uh, in the market building, you know, risking uh, capital. So locking them out or just painting them with a a broad brush, I think, is does a disservice as well. So. It is complicated, but I think we need a good mix of all all types of uh, buyers and sellers.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's certainly a benefit. You know, you got to go back to the financial crisis. In the wake of the crisis, the the housing market was evaporating. House prices were down 20, 25%. And the only thing that turned it around as fast as it turned it, it ultimately would have turned around, but the thing that turned it around as fast as it was turned around. Was investor demand, right? I mean, these institutional investors were kind of born out of that period. They came up, came in, took a lot of risk, bought up distressed, foreclosed property, and uh, you know helped uh, put a floor under, uh, finally put a floor under pricing, and allowed the market to start to recover from a price perspective. So it's not like they don't provide some benefit, but uh, but in this case. You know, I worry about the homeownership effects. I I do want to come back to homeownership, uh, uh, Chris and Christy and Marissa. I think that's also something I'm worried about longer run. But just to break things up a little bit, um, uh, I want to do the game, the statistics game. And I'm sure it's going to be very housing related anyway, so I'm sure that'll be the case. But um, uh, the game, uh, we each uh, put forward a statistic. Uh, The rest of the group tries to figure out what that is based on – Questioning clues, deductive reasoning. The best uh, stat is one that's not so easy. We get it immediately, uh, or that's uh, oh, that's although that's pretty hard to do with Christy in the in the in the podcast. He's you know he's pretty fast and not too easy, not too hard that we can't we'll never get it. Uh, so uh, and if it's apropos to the topic at hand, that's a bonus. So the tradition is now, Marissa, you're first up on the game. What's your statistic?
3: Okay, there's two statistics. Related. One is 1.6% and the other is plus nine and a half percent.
0: Is it related to the senior loan officer survey? No. 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 <laughs> she's We've laughing. A, That's she's a laughing because <laughs> we were going back and forth on that one all week long. Uh, 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 is it housing related?
3: It is. It oh.
0: Is. Minus 1.6 and positive
3: nine point nine and a half. Nine and a half.
2: MBA related?
3: No. No.
2: Is it a house
0: price related?
3: Yes. Ah. Uh
0: is it from the realtor's median existing house prices?
3: It is. it is. Yep. Uh
0: so these are Q4. Oh, I know. I think I know what it is. It's the highest and the lowest house price. Change over the past year across metro areas. No, no, it's no. not.
3: Okay. It's not. It's 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 two, it's two metro. It's two metro areas that I picked. That oh, geez,
0: Louise, 400 are four hundred
3: plus metro areas?
0: Okay, wait, okay, okay. All right, fair enough. <laughs> They're
3: not randomly selected. Okay, it's year
0: over, over year. <laughs> year over year.
3: Yeah, it's okay. year over year in the fourth Stan- quarter. San
0: Francisco is the minus one four.
3: No. LA. But you're close. LA. S- San Jose. San Jose. Orange County.
0: Oh, you're where home, I live. Home where I live. Yeah. Where you live. Yeah. Oh, they're down minus one four. That home one one six, project one six. You did is looking less like a good financial. Yeah. District. Right. Yeah. yeah.
3: Down one six. And then the plus nine and a half percent is. Really? No, <laughs> oh, but good guess. Good. Um, let me think. Is a small area? Uh huh.
0: Of course, it's like Kalamazoo, Michigan.
3: It's, it's no, it's it's York, PA. No, uh, o- Cala-
0: Florida. It's Vero Beach.
3: Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Ouch!
1: Ouch. Ouch. Yeah. I'm very so so this what is you're where mark lives is,
3: chris half the yeah, year I,
1: yeah i know it's, a, yeah. I, it's unusual housing economists usually don't buy in places where prices go up
3: <laughs> <laughs> i've owned this
0: place for 15 years chris i'm just saying yeah oh my gosh really it's
3: up nine four i'll take it i not know yeah, and and i was gonna
0: say yeah. So
3: the the in, so this is the National Association of Realtors median house price quarterly data, not seasonally adjusted in the in the fourth quarter of twenty two. Ninety percent of the metro areas in the country had positive year over year growth in house prices, but there were a bunch that that actually are now decline declining year over year, and most of them are in California. Most of the ones that now have year over year Declines are in California, LA, San Francisco, San Jose, where I live, Orange County, all negative over the year. Plus a few other metros like Nashville, Austin, Salt Lake City, right? That had a lot of demand over the past couple of years. All of the metro almost all of the metros that have the largest year-over-year increases still are in Florida. Um, hmm.
1: And so this is the realtors, right? So it's what's transacting. This is right. This is the realtors. It's yeah. The uh, median.
3: Price. And it's median.
1: Yeah.
0: So that's influenced by the mix of homes, right. Transacting.
3: Not our favorite house price measure, but <clears throat> yeah. but, but very really, granular at the metro level. And it's what people are
1: buying, so it's not unimportant. That feels just weird, but but I can't figure out
0: why. What what I mean, you would see the high ends gotten hit harder. So, you would right. have thought that that would buy us lower the NAR median price, right? But it's not.
3: Yeah. yeah. And and nationally, it's up 4% year over year. Yeah. From the NAR.
2: Yeah. Yeah, interesting. I guess oh, this, it's it. actually transacting, right? What's yeah, that, these are, these I guess are it's what's prices. actually transacting, right? Sale but, prices. Yeah. Yeah. Right. If, if the lower end of the market is just there's no inventory,
0: then. I
3: don't know.
2: So,
0: you think there might be just more uh, transactions at the low end that's driving down the price? That doesn't feel right. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe you're right. Maybe. I don't know. It sounds like a mixed issue, is what I'm saying. Sounds like a mixed issue. Yeah. Anyway, we're now in the, we're deep in the weeds. Yeah.
1: I got to say, I feel very much at home here with you housing data nerds. This is fun. (laughs) (laughs) We're right there with you,
0: Chris. How many households are there in the United States and how many has it changed over the past quarter or the past year? That, Answering that question is a debate we're having with each other, and we've we've agreed to disagree on that. I mean, which means we, you know, there's no definitive number, which is really bizarre. I just find that so weird. Uh, but anyway, I'm ranting. Um, you no,
1: know, I mean, there's but, two ways to do it, right? One way to do it is you say we know how much housing there is. Yeah. We know the size of the yeah. stock. We go out and we count. We what's the vacancy rate and the households or the residual. Yeah. And so trying to capture how many housing units there are, I think is, is challenging because there's a lot more fluidity to the stock than we realize in terms of subdivisions and the like. The other way, we, like, so that's what the HBS does. The CPS says, I'm going to ask you if you had a household and you, Mark Zandi, are, or what, however old you are, you know, white male. And I know there's X million in the country and the, uh, of the ones that we answered to the survey, X percent say had a household, weighted up using the population control totals. What's interesting is the CPS and the HPS are the same survey. Mm-hmm. Right. And you know. but they they have they each give a household count. One uses housing unit controls, one uses population controls. So we yeah. get two answers. And, and and quarter to quarter,
0: sometimes like massive differences between them. Yeah, massive Right.
1: But yeah. it's the same survey.
0: <laughs> yeah, bizarre. Okay, Chris D, Chris Teriz, you're up. What's your stat? Sixty one point six.
3: The homeownership rate. Nope. Oh no, that's more that's like
0: 66
2: percent
3: yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, Is it a housing statistic, Chris it is it is one of the is few it- housing
2: statistics that came out this week.
0: Oh, and it came out this week. Yeah.
3: Uh, say it again
2: sixty one point six
0: And it's not the realtors' data. nope no it's uh, not anything related to it's housing not mortgage related. It is housing related. It's not. It's, it's housing related.
3: Oh, is it? Is it the increase? Of my
0: favorites. Go <laughs> It's, it's to, one of your
2: favorites. I've yeah, I've used it before.
3: Oh, you have. Oh. <clears throat> is it from the housing vacancy survey? Nope. Okay. Is it the increase in the average monthly mortgage payment over the year? He said it was housing.
0: Or...
2: Nope, that's not it. But
0: is it? That's oh, a good okay. one. It's long. Oh, it's along those lines.
2: No, no, I'm.
0: Oh, oh, okay. I'm just saying, I'm
2: gonna... just acknowledging that that would have been a good statistic. Hey,
0: hey, can I just stop for a second and say, doesn't Chris look like George Clooney? A bit. <laughs> oh, look at wow. him. Right here. Yeah, he looks like George because of the beard. You know, there's like a, he's grown a little bit of a beard here. Oh, yeah. oh I think with this Chris,
1: that you know, Chris. <laughs> no, don't That's I take it. <laughs> sorry, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, it's so funny. Yeah, yes, he does. Absolutely.
3: Doesn't he? Yeah. I would like George
1: Clooney. Yeah. George
2: you know, Clooney. my uh, mother in law says the same thing.
3: Yeah, there's a Clooney esque wow.
2: element there.
3: Not a bad yeah. person to look like. No, I'd no. say. Yeah. All right, back to 61.6. Give us a hint,
0: Chris, or you can't give us a hint.
1: Is it related to uh, existing home sales?
2: No, it's uh, it's uh, sentimental. Oh, it's to, it goes to sentiment. It's Fannie Mae kind
3: of oh home builder you, sentiment.
2: You know, it's the uh, Fannie Mae home price Mae. Uh, sentiment index. Oh, yeah. It's
0: his favorite. and I never look at it. That's why I never get. <laughs> can it. you explain huh? that? Yeah, can you explain it? Yeah, good.
2: It's a survey they conduct in ter- to get uh, perceptions of buyers and sellers' uh, opinions about the market. Right so this uh, 61.6 it's an index level it's, uh, it's a combination of several of the questions that they ask. Mm-hmm. I guess the most important part of it is that it it is up 0.6 points from December which was the low, right? So it's consistent with this idea maybe we are coming off bottom but we're not roaring ahead, right? Maybe we're putting in a bottom here. Um, one of the key questions that we focus on is buyer sentiment, right? About only about 17% of the survey respondents said that it's a good time to buy. I'm I mean, sorry, 70% said it was a bad time to buy. 82% said it was a good time to buy.
3: Good time. Oh. Huh? 82% really? said it's a good time to buy.
2: I'm sorry. I'm, I'm yeah. using that. <laughs> 82% said it was a bad time to buy. Yeah. 72%
3: it's a good time. Okay. To
0: buy. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Oh, interesting.
2: very pessimistic
0: still. That's a quarterly survey that comes out from Fannie? Uh, monthly. Is it monthly? I got to start looking at that. Yeah. I, I don't look at that. I should look at it. Right, that's a good one. That's a really good one. Uh, Chris H., do you want to go? Uh, and, sure.
1: Uh, I'll, I'll give it a shot. I'm not sure that uh, I'm up for the, the caliber of this group, but here's here's my, the answer to the question is 42. 42. Meaning
0: And I'm sure it's housing related
1: thousand-related.
0: Yeah. Uh, and is it a statistic or is it just a... It, it's a statistic. statistic. It is. Okay. If you tell about us the, the units,
3: speech. will it give it away?
1: Yes. Okay. Um, but let me see if I can give a hint. Um, it, it's indirectly related to the supply issues we've been talking about.
0: Indirectly. Indirectly related. 42... Hmm. Is, Is it, it a, a measure robust, of time? <laughs> oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Chris, Mercer. go ahead. You ask your question. Is
3: request. it a measure of time, Chris? Is it? It's related to time. Uh-huh. Like. I...
0: Is that the length of time it takes to put up a multifamily unit?
1: From <laughs> permit to <laughs> Or completion? to get a permit? A number of months? It's not, but it, that's, that's actually not a bad uh, number to have. That, uh, that 42 would be a
0: long time though. That would be three and a half years. That feels long, but maybe from com- start to completion, but that's not what this is now. Okay, that's give that's me, the I'll time give to game. get solar. So,
1: okay. it, it was 42 at, oh, at measure in 20, 20 21, but in 1995, it was 28. Oh, in 1995, it was
0: 28. Is, is, is that, uh, I, I don't know. Is that, I, I want to say the average, is it days?
1: No, it's years. Oh, oh, it's
0: the, oh, uh, the it, it can't, can't be the, the, the oh.
2: Is it can't the average? Uh, no, the home buyer is older. It's not
1: the age. That. Is it the average age of the single family housing stock? No, of of the overall housing stock, of the overall housing okay. stock. Oh. So that is the median. So the median oh. housing unit is now forty two years old. It's the oldest oh. it's ever been, and it was in nineteen ninety five. It was twenty eight years old.
3: Wow. So one result
1: of not building housing is that the housing we have is a lot older.
0: Wow. That is interesting. interesting. So, so in 1995, the average age of a housing unit, single and multi together was yep. 28 years. And now it is 42 years.
1: Yep.
0: Wow. That is, that is an interesting statistic.
1: So you think about in the nineties, right? We, we had, post-war housing stock was old and decrepit and then we had enormous wave of building in the 70s and 80s 60s 70s and 80s and we had young housing stock in the 90s and now we haven't been building that much and so it's old so this is why the remodeling market's so strong
0: yeah of course in the 80s we had a a boom in multifamily, right tax related i mean it was a massive a massive number of units went up in the 80s so that might have had an impact yeah Yeah. but it's interesting okay that's a really good statistic. Okay, yeah. I, you ready for mine? Yep. Yeah. And it is housing related. I'm going to give you two numbers. Ready? Five point eight and point eight. Five point eight and point eight. Both and they're you know re, very much related. Same release. Housing came out this week. I think it came out this week. I I'm, I it's all blurred to me. So it's 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 in the vicinity of this week. If it wasn't this week, it's in the vicinity. Spitting distance of this week if it wasn't exactly, you know, this week. This week went fast. Housing Actually. not housing not mortgage. How, uh, very very much housing goes yeah. to supply, the supply Ex- issue.
1: Existing home sales related?
0: No. No.
1: Ba- oh. Vacancy rate? Vacancy rate. Exactly.
0: Rates. Very good, Marissa. Owner and Actually. rental. Excellent, excellent. So the, what's the 5.8? Rental. Rental. Rental, vac- Rental vacancy. What's the point eight? Homeowner. The homeowner vacancy rate. So this is goes to supply. I mean, the homeowner vacancy rate will start there. That's the vacancy rate for homes homes for sale. 0. 0.8 is the lowest on record. Uh, and that comes from the housing vacancy survey, the HVS that you mentioned earlier, Chris. And, um, you know, obviously it goes to, the, the 1.5 million shortfall in units. I mean, we are very low and typically you would see a vacancy rate of 1.5%. So it's, you know, we need, we're about half of what we typically would want in a kind of well-functioning housing market. And by the way, that's one reason to suspect that if we get price declines and we are getting price decline house price declines, they should be modest, right? Because we have this really tight physical market and that should provide a lot, that should provide a proverbial floor under price. And that should be very, very helpful. And, it, and it's, it's across the country. It's you know all over the country, we're seeing the, these kinds of shortages. 5.8 is the rental vacancy rate. Now, that's not the lowest on record. That was lower back in the 70s and 80s when we were putting up with all those homes, uh, rental homes. And, uh, but it's pretty darn low. In, in a typical market, a well-functioning rental market, you, you would want a vacancy rate around seven. Uh, so, you know, we're still well below, you know, the, those kind of vacancies. So it goes, goes to the shortage. So, yeah, very good. Marissa, you got that one. Very good. Um, okay, let's, um, we're coming to the end of time. I do want to double back and uh, end it with one longer term issue. You know, we kind of began with near what's top of mind right now, the housing recession want to end with you know thinking a little longer run here in the home ownership rate and i want to try something out on you chris chris uh, herbert uh and i've tried this out on chris d before but i would like to try it on you i I, i'm i'm nervous that the home ownership rate is is at a high watermark you know going forward that you know going uh, forward uh it's going to be very difficult to raise the home ownership rate for three broad reasons one's affordability I mean, you know, you, know, right, you know, right now, the fixed mortgage rate is about six to six and a quarter. In my uh, calculation, in the long run, the fixed mortgage rate should be somewhere between five and a half to six. And so that means if we have an affordability problem at six and a quarter, we're going to have it's still going to be an affordability problem at five and a half, six. to six. So that is going to remain an issue. Second, the investors that we were talking about, I, my view, those institutional investors, they, they figured this out. This is a business model. And they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna take advantage of that tax code you know all day long, and it's gonna be very difficult, particularly for uh, lower income households who need a mortgage, particularly like an FHA mortgage, because it's gonna be harder to get get that get that home. And the third is just just pure demographic. It's the you know the distribution the, the ethnic distribution the race dist- racial distribution of the population. The white homeownership rate, the overall homeownership rate is two thirds. The white homeownership rate is 75%. The uh, Hispanic uh, uh, home ownership rate is about 45% ish, maybe a little higher. And it's about 40 for the for, for uh, black Americans. And we know that the, the racial composition, excuse me, racial composition of the population is going to continue to move away from white to non-white. And debt, mere fact, means if if home ownership rates don't change across uh, races, that we're going to see the home ownership rate decline. So it feels like to me, unless there's some kind of policy change or we do something 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, the home ownership rate is going to be lower than it is today. Two questions. One should I be worried about this? You know, do I, do I care that the home ownership rates declining? And I, you know, that's become an issue that's become a, more of a topic recently. And secondly, if we should care, do you, do you agree with my characterization of things? And, and finally, I guess, third, third question, what should we do about it to address it? So a lot, a lot there to unpack and I'll just throw it into your court and have you respond.
1: All right. Number one, should we care? I would say yes. Um, yes. And you know, I, we the joint center we would like to be fair-minded and equal, and so I don't want to say that renting is bad. I just want to make sure people recognize that I realize renting has value. There's lots of people choose to rent. We have to have a well-functioning rental market. But there are a lot he of he is running for
0: governor. governor. Do you see
1: how? <laughs> he's yeah. I was just <laughs> like, want to get a call
3: from. Yeah, you. yeah. he's appeasing <laughs> everyone. Yes. <Yeah>.
1: Um. <laughs> no, but but um. It's it's what most people prefer. It it is an important source of financial stability. I mean, you it, it can generate wealth. It it locks in your mortgage payment. Um, and, uh, and there, and there's a whole host of reasons why people prefer it. So I, I think we, we do, um, care about it. I think it should be a policy concern, you know, like, particularly in a market where house prices keep going up, which they've only done over a long period of time. And so if you think about what just happened with house prices, if you were a homeowner, you know, you hit the lottery, right? Your house price went up 20%. And so you're in and you're a hedge, right? So you're insulated. So if i it's in the housing market, I, I benefit from that upturn. So. I think there really are a lot of strong reasons why we should encourage and enable people, to, not back of encourage, enable people to get into home ownership. So your second question was, uh, should, Do you, you agree right?
0: with my uh, forecast that if we, you know, nothing changes here. It feels like homeownership is going to be lower 10, 20 years from now.
1: Yeah, it's hard to see. Um, uh, yes, I think all those, those three things that you pointed to. So the affordability, the demographic changes. Um, and and just the racial
0: we, composition of the population. Yeah.
1: Yeah, are, are, are all going to be ones that will make it more difficult to buy a home. And, you know, one of the things that, that we point to is, you know, as much as you know, the interest rates going up to five and a half to six percent, but it's also house prices at the level they are. You know, it used to be 25 years ago, typically prices were three times income. Now they're more nationally level about five times income. And In some markets they're are eight, nine, ten times income. And more places have that five times income ratio like Denver, you know, places that didn't have that. What that means is you have to have a whole lot more cash, even for a small down payment mortgage. And and a lot of folks, particularly folks of color, don't have anywhere near that amount of cash and they don't have the bank of mom and dad to go to. So I think the affordability issues are going to be really significant. Mm -hmm. Um, And what do we do about it? Well, you know, and here's the challenge, right? Is that You want to try to create pathways to home ownership that help the people who but for it wouldn't get there and aren't themselves inflationary so i do think we need to think about um having and and i'm a proponent of down payment assistance because i think that wealth barrier savings barrier is a big one um i would be a proponent of thinking much more about how do we get targeted down payment assistance targeted i think the folks have talked about first generation buyers that are like ways of targeting it to people who but for this might not get there i'm also a proponent we haven't talked about this much in policy circles lately is of ways that uh, encourage and match savings. I do think that you wanna make sure people are prepared for home ownership and the ability to save is is an important financial skill and a signal of of resilience. I I don't think having equity in the house has proved to be as significant in terms of skin in the game. I think what we learned from the crisis was so many, millions of people were underwater and never walked away from their mortgage. But the reason why down payments matter is because it shows financial capacity. So I think match savings approach is another way to kind of say, you know, we're going to kind of limit who gets it because you're going to have to wait wait a little while to build up. But I think down payment assistance is really going to be important. And I think finding ways to make sure it's targeted to the right folks who need it um, is important.
0: Yeah, there's actually this cool program, I think, that's going to be unveiled in California where... uh, the government, will, the state will provide down payment assistance and in exchange, get a shared uh, appreciation uh, claim. You know, they can when the home is sold, they get a, a claim on the some percent of the appreciation and the value of the home so right. that they can take that money, that that fund, the funds they raise to help make this thing a self. Of uh, financing, kind of uh, down payment assistance program. That that sounds like a pretty cool idea, particularly in places like California, where generally house prices, you know, continue to move higher. Right,
1: and I think if you're going to give, like, if it's one thing if you're giving folks five or ten thousand dollars in down payment assistance, you know, then it's not really worth the bureaucratic hassle of tracking it and you know, getting a shared piece of it. But if you're in California, you're probably going to have to give people substantial amounts of equity to make home ownership feasible, and then having some ability to get it back makes sense. It's another way to limit it, right? Because if I have the ability to buy a home, fee simple without that kind of encumbrance, you know, entanglement, then I will. But if I need the help, then I'll then I'll take the entanglement. So it's a good targeting mechanism, too.
0: Of course, it, these down payment assistance programs don't really work all that well unless you have supply, unless you've got homes that you can put people in. Like right now, we got this severe shortage. So if you layer on uh, something that juices up demand, and there's just no homes, it just jacks up prices and rents and no one's better off as a result. So I think the first thing we got to do is we've got to get more supply. We got to figure out how to produce more housing units uh, and, uh, uh, you know, make sure that when there is, uh, uh, you know, when we provide that down payment assistance, it just doesn't simply end up in higher a higher house price, uh, you know, so we've got to make sure we calibrate those things. Uh, Christy, did, is anything there or Marissa that you wanted to add on the home ownership side that I missed? I mean, did you, actually Christy, because uh, uh, I know you think about this carefully, would you agree with my characterization of home ownership going forward? Uh, as usual, I'm going to push back a little bit. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> good, yeah. yeah. yeah well, think- well, can I just say as preface and we're going to come, we're going to end this shortly, yeah. but we forecast a lot of things. We model a lot of things to help produce forecasts and, homeownership is if not the hardest thing to model and forecast it's pretty darn close uh you know it's very difficult to get a good model for that but anyway with that as a preface yeah yeah Uh,
2: yeah fair enough i I think a lot depends on your time horizon right because the demographic trends are certainly changing within the country right so if you're looking if you're talking about the next 10 years absolutely i think it's
0: yeah
2: you're talking i think everything you mentioned in terms of the trends that we're seeing, that's all going to take place. And yeah, very hard to push up the homeownership rate. As we get down to 15, 20 years from now, given projected growth rates in the population, the aging of the population. So you mentioned the the racial uh, composition of homeownership, but there's also a very strong relationship with age, right? So as the population ages, even within those racial categories, you're going to get more Mm -hmm. homeownership. So Mm -hmm. I think that might be a factor here, but just abstracting from that, as the population, as hostile formations actually start to come down, right, there are going to be more opportunities. There, actually, we could go from too little supply to too much, uh, having excess supply oh, I see. in terms of uh, of housing. Yeah. Potentially, it all depends on you know what goes on with the birth rates, immigration policy. But as you get further out, we, I suspect, we're going to look a lot more like Europe uh, than uh, than we have in the past, where we do have. Well, that's another question. But in many countries, you have where you have this older population. You do have fairly high uh, home ownership rates. So that would be my my own caveat yeah, here. It depends what yeah, yeah. what time horizon we're we're talking about here.
0: Right, got it. Um, yeah,
2: and I think I think that's
1: a great point, Chris, because I, yeah. I we get caught up in the conditions at the moment and feel like this is a permanent condition. And and I think you know we talked a little bit about household formation, which is running really high. But if you look at the demographics. I mean, our projections and they need to be updated when we get some good population projections from the census says we're going to slow to about a million households pretty soon <laughs> and um and that's a whole lot less than we have now there's a piece i don't know if you're familiar with i think gary engelhardt did it for reha uh looking at baby boom turnover and they he estimates that'll be about four million housing units a year coming from the boomers uh you know as they get into their 70s and eight late 70s and 80s and so there is going to be a big supply, existing supply response coming. So we could be in a very different market. And I'm not sure of the timeline, five years, 10 years, certainly 15 mm-hmm. years. So uh, I think your point's well taken.
0: Yeah, good.
1: Well, we covered a lot of ground. Uh, and
0: I'll just end by throwing out uh, an open ended question. Chris, did we uh, miss anything we should have been talking about? Is there any issues that you think we, we missed? Anything glaring?
1: No? Uh, nothing' glaring i would say um i mean the one thing that uh, i um that's percolating up a lot more on the policy front is the question about enhancing tenant protections yeah and um right. you know it, it, five years ago people said to me what do you think about the possibility of rent control and i said that's you no know, that's never going to happen and now obviously various forms of it and i think it's important to distinguish between what oregon and California have done and what St. paul did but um, and now the the renter bill of rights that the Biden administration put forward, very contentious. But I think you know, the, given the fact that I would say that tenants have don't have a lot of protections, and given the fact that staying stable in the house is so important, we need to have a real conversation about what what would sensible tenant protections look like. Sensible meaning they don't discourage supply, that they don't demean the role that landlords play in providing this housing, but at the same time you know, rent increases of 20% are really hard for people to tolerate. And so um, I don't know, this is a a debate that seems to be growing and one that's uh, filled with a lot more heat than light. So,
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I kind of feel the the, kind of the political ground shifting here a little bit. So you're right. I mean, economists hate rent control, you know, for the obvious reason that if you control rent, you're going to control. You're going to restrict supply. I mean, builders aren't going to put up units, and that's the exact opposite of what you want. But, but uh, you're, you're right. I think there's kind of more nuanced thinking around this that's going on. You know, maybe there's some things that can be done to you know, help address this issue. Hopefully, we get more supply and rent vacancy normalizes, gets back up to that seven percent, and rent growth normalizes, and then you
1: know we'll be okay. I'm but, I mean, a subject for another podcast for you with some appropriate. Yeah, guess. exactly. Yeah. This
3: is a <clears throat> enormous, I, I live in California and you could do a podcast on housing in California. Just there's so much going on. There's state, there's still state moratoriums on rental increases in effect layered on top of County like Los Angeles County has their own. The city of Los Angeles has their own. I have a, friend who's a a, an attorney in landlord tenant law and she just said it's week by week changing regulations that she has to keep up with to understand Mm -hmm. what the state's doing what the county's saying what the city is saying and um yeah it's a it's a huge debate here just if you if you take los angeles and then there's the homelessness issue on top of it too and trying to find housing and and converting commercial buildings to uh, you know, residential units. So there's a lot going on that I think is fascinating that I would love to hear uh, your expertise on at some yeah. point, Chris.
0: Well, we're going to have to have you back, Chris. Uh, you can see we're already setting you up
3: for the next podcast. Yeah. So,
0: uh, you know, it, it was your fault because you brought it up. We didn't. <laughs> uh, but thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it was a wonderful conversation, very thoughtful and insightful. And, uh uh We will be in in touch because, you know, we do uh, inside economics, give our guests uh, a small token of appreciation, you know, that's within the guidelines of Moody's uh, gift policy. So, you know, uh, but uh, I will be in touch uh, on in that regard. But uh, thank you for for, uh, spending the hour, uh, hour plus with us. Much appreciated. And with that, dear listener, we are going to call this a podcast. Talk to you next week.